Good morning. Welcome to this uh, third Sunday in Easter. If you have your Bibles with you, um, please uh, turn to Luke 24. We'll be reading our gospel reading, uh, verses 13 through 37. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent." So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The Gospel of our Lord. The art of walking as a primary means of transportation is almost lost in 21st century America. We walk for exercise and we walk for recreation. We may even walk some places in our neighborhood, uh, but we don't generally use walking as our primary means of transportation from one town to another, which means we miss out on encounters like this where we come to a stranger and have an extended conversation as we're walking on the road. Probably the closest thing that comes to it is sitting next to someone in an airplane or in a reception area, but those have a much different vibe to them. It says in this passage that the village of Emmaus was 60 stadia, or about seven miles from Jerusalem, 
And at an average walking pace, that probably would have taken the disciples about two hours. So Jesus had that period of time in which to, uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpret to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, if that had been recorded, that would have made one awesome podcast, don't you think? But I don't think Jesus' intention was to give us all those details, but instead to transform the thinking of these disciples. And at the same time, he gives us a paradigm for how to look at scriptures. God has spoken to us through many different human authors over hundreds of years in many different literary forms and cultural settings, but together they speak with one voice. As uh, Tim Mackey and John Collins with the Bible Project like to say, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We see that unified story in our lectionary readings from this morning. We have three of them, and they all present a single uh, story of salvation. Uh, a triptych is a, uh, is a picture in three parts, in three panels, laid next to each other. And I think we have one here. This is actually from the 16th century, and it's a triptych of the life of Christ. And it has three panels next to each other. They're different pictures, but they tell one story. Our lectionary readings from this morning are like that. Uh, on the left, we have the Psalms, uh, Psalm 116, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. On the right panel, we have 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And in the center panel, we have Acts chapter 2. We'll focus on that, especially verses 36 through 39, if we can have that. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The word of the Lord. This is a, also a story of salvation, but it also ha is a model for spiritual transformation or what we call sanctification for those of us who already believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, the setting is Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come in power and uh, come upon the disciples and they begin speaking, proclaiming the gospel in different languages and a crowd gathers. Then Peter stands up and he preaches, preaches a sermon. And just as Jesus had opened the scriptures to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Peter opens the scriptures to the crowd. And he ends with these words, uh, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Basically, God has done this great thing in fulfillment of all he promised in the scriptures. And by the way, then you went ahead and crucified him. Now, the response of the people is to be cut to the heart. This uh, word cut, a similar verb is used to describe the soldiers who stabbed Jesus' side as his body 
hung on the cross. It can also be translated pierce or stab. So the audience, Peter's audience, was, was pierced or stabbed in the heart. Many of them had probably been there when they heard the crowds yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Perhaps some of them had participated. They were there when the crowds yelled, his blood be on us and on our children. Some were there yelling, crucify him. Some of them were remaining silent when they should have spoken up. But all of us bear responsibility because it was for our sins that he died. Now the natural response when someone tries to stab you in the heart is to either run away or fight back. Um, When someone criticizes us, the natural response is to either ignore it or to deny it, right? When uh, our heart starts to make us feel guilty, it's a lot easier to distract ourselves or to numb our pain or to lash out against someone or something that we think is causing our pain rather than to own it. These are natural responses. And uh, by God's grace, that's not the response that this crowd had. A few months ago, I had a friend who was actually literally stabbed in the heart. And he didn't run away and he didn't fight. Because the person wielding the knife was a trained heart surgeon who was saving his life (laughs) by fixing the blockage in one of his coronary arteries. That makes all the difference, doesn't it? If we can take the pain and understand that God is the skilled heart surgeon who can use that pain to bring out healing and good purposes, then we can receive it not as a natural response, but as a transformative response to pain. A transformative response to pain might look something like this, to first listen, then to learn, and then act. To listen to what the pain is saying. Remain in the pain long enough to hear what it's actually telling us. Then to come with a posture of curiosity to learn what God might be teaching us in this pain. And then to act on that knowledge. Brothers, what shall we do? What the crowd said. Peter gives three responses, three action items for them. The first is to repent. The second is let every one of you be baptized. And then the third, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, many people, when they hear the word repent, uh, they're thinking of um, like feeling guilty or remorseful. And that certainly might come before repentance, as it did with this crowd who were cut to the heart. But the word translated repent there actually means to have a serious change of mind and heart about a previous point of view or a course of behavior. It's not really about feeling bad. It's about changing your mind and your heart. I I jumped jumped ahead. There we go. True repentance involves a change of heart and mind. Um, The disciples on the road to Emmaus are a good illustration of that. They set out from Jerusalem to Emmaus discouraged and confused. Something happened to them, and then they turned around and they came back the other direction, full of hope and joy. And that's something that happened was Jesus came to them. He opened the scriptures to them, changed their minds. And then their hearts were burning within them. And then they saw him as the risen Lord and their hearts were changed as well. They went out one way and they came back another. 
And that's a picture of repentance for us, not about feeling bad about things, but about changing our heart and mind. Now, that sounds easy, but in practice, it can be a little tough. My wife and I were married almost 32 years ago, and for our honeymoon, we went to an island in the Caribbean called Grand Cayman. And there are lots of fun things to see and and do there. And uh, there's a part of the island with these very interesting uh, black uh, limestone uh, formations that they call hell. And so we decided we would go there and see that. And so I can say my wife probably literally had been to hell and back with me. <clears throat> so my plan was that we would take a, a taxi from our hotel to, to hell and that we would look at those <laughs> formations and then we would walk back because it was only about three miles away. Well, um, <clears throat> things went pretty well for the first part with the taxi ride and the actual seeing of the formations. But as we headed back by foot, I realized that my wife was not completely on board with this. Uh, Somehow walking three miles in the hot sun wasn't her idea of the ideal vacation. And I have repented from that. But I also do that to myself sometimes. I I make promises to myself that I can't keep because my repentance is in the mind only. And there are lots of parts of me that are not fully bought in. They're not along for the ride. And um, I've had to learn to start listening to myself and to my emotions to come to true repentance because true repentance involves both the heart and the mind. The second part of Peter's response is uh, let every one of you be baptized. If you were here last Sunday, you were here for our, uh, what we affectionately call our baptism bonanza. Um, Lots of folks were baptized. And as part of our baptism liturgy, you you would have heard the words, uh, baptism is the way people are welcomed into the family of the church. The outward sign of baptism is water, And the inward and spiritual grace in baptism is union with Christ in his death and resurrection, birth into God's family, the church, forgiveness of sins, and new life in the Holy Spirit. For our repentance to be meaningful, it needs to be accompanied by a change in identity and the solidarity of community. When the disciples returned to Jerusalem, they immediately went to join the other disciples to renew their identification with them, to be part of that community, the redeemed community. And in baptism, we identify ourselves with Jesus and with his people, the solidarity of community, a change in identity. And we need these physical reminders, physical reminders of God's love and forgiveness because we're so prone to forget those things. Baptism is something that happens for us once, But there are other reminders of God's love and forgiveness that he gives us to remind us of what we're so prone to forget. One of those is confession. Now Jesus died once for all to forgive all our sins, past, present, and future. And yet in the Lord's Prayer, he tells us to pray, uh, forgive us our our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In the book of James, chapter 5, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And in 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
We confess our sins so that we can experience afresh and anew God's love and his forgiveness for us. The importance of confession and, um, and forgiveness is well known to the recovery community. Uh, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous um, has steps four and five which are focused on this. Step four says, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. That uh, confession and, and forgiveness are important reminders for us to keep us connected with God's love and forgiveness. If you'd like to explore further uh, the 12 steps as a classic model for Christian spiritual growth, I would recommend to you the excellent book by Keith Miller, A Hunger for Healing. It's no coincidence that we have confession right before we have communion, because communion is another powerful, physical, visible sign of God's love and forgiveness, an outward sign of an inward grace. When we come to the communion table, we experience Christ's presence. We remember that his body was broken and his blood was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins and also to give us new life in him. The traditional posture of receiving communion is our hands open like this um, rather than, than taking because we're called to receive his grace, to receive his love and forgiveness, not to take it. Now that is so much uh, against our nature, it's a very unnatural posture to have. When someone gives something to you, you take it, right? If you go into the store and you want to pay for something with your credit card and you hand your credit card to the salesperson and they put their hands out like that, that's kind of weird, isn't it? So it's a very unnatural posture to, to, to come to um, just to receive. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to receive his grace. Okay, now, I know some of you who have been here before are thinking, Nate, I'm perfectly happy to receive that dry communion wafer, but once you dip it in the wine, it makes a soggy mess, and I really don't want that on my hand. Uh, and I get that. Um, I, I have always had a, um, an aversion to having you know, yucky stuff on my hands. When I was growing up, my father used to always say, Nate, don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. Now, in my defense, my father was a pathologist, and he trained back when, I don't, I don't think they even wore gloves when they did autopsies. So there was, I don't think there was anything that would gross him out or anything that he was afraid to touch. Uh, but I showed him. I went to medical school, and then I went into infectious diseases, and they put me in charge of infection control at my hospital. And it was my job. They actually paid me to keep my hands clean and to make everyone else keep their hands clean as well. <laughs> But when I come to communion, to receive communion, um, I take it in my hands. And yes, there's a, a soggy, wet spot in the middle. Um, but that reminds me of those wounds of love in Jesus' nail-pierced hands, the act of love that bought my forgiveness. It also reminds me that like the crowd that Peter preached to, like the crowd that yelled, crucify him, crucify him. I also have blood on my hands, but blood that Jesus has forgiven. Reminds me of his stigmata, 
and also of his blood. That brings us to Peter's final response. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is not uh, referring here to spiritual gifts. He's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit himself. God's gift to us is his permanent presence in our lives. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, God walked with them in the cool of the day. When humankind turned its back on God and walked away, God came near again in the, to the nation of Israel in the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire at night, in the holy of holies of the tabernacle and the temple. And then as Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, he again walked with humankind. But now he goes above and beyond. He gives us his spirit, not just to live with us, but to live within us. This is not just for super spiritual Christians. This is a promise for everyone, for you and for your children. And I think Peter chose his words here very carefully. For a crowd who had been there um, when they were yelling, his blood be on us and on our children, to hear that this promise is for you and for your children echoes the language of their betrayal and undoes it. It's for you and for your children, for all who are far off, and that includes us who are far away in time and space but have been brought near. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We've tried to capture this promise in the first of our core commitments here at Trinity. Experience the love of God and life in the Holy Spirit. As we come to confession and then to communion... I want to acknowledge that it doesn't always feel like God is near. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, we oftentimes feel confused, hopeless, and abandoned. Jesus is walking with us, but we don't recognize him. As we receive his grace and communion, uh, may our eyes be opened as theirs were in the breaking of the bread. I'd like for us to move into a few moments of, of quiet reflection, you consider where are you struggling to change your heart and mind, to remember God's love and forgiveness, or to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit? We'll take a few moments of silence and then move into our time of, of confession.